Fate would like to thank Jack Rieschen and company for sponsoring this episode of Positive Space. Rieschen manufactures all sorts of painting and drawing supplies. That's oils, acrylics, watercolors, pastels, charcoal, you name it. They probably make it. Heck, they even have studio furniture. Make sure to check out Jack Rieschen at rieschenart.com. That's R-I-C-H-E-S-O-N-A-R-T.com. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory, and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Positive space. And today, joining us via Skype, we have Thomas Albrecht. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you very much, Valerie. You are very welcome. I'm so excited that we get to have this conversation via satellites and technology and all of that good stuff. (laughs) I love technology. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought you could give us a little intro into artwork, your teaching background, and Uh your current position. Okay. Actually, what I'll do is I'll start with my sort of development as an educator. It started back when I was uh, an undergrad at uh, Rhode Island School of Design, where I served as a TA. And then shortly after I left RISD, I started working for the Center for Public Service at Brown University, where I developed writing programs for diverse populations, for adult learners that never learned how to adequately uh, sort of read or uh, write. And after that, I really, after that experience, which was really foundational for my own teaching and my own thinking for that matter, I, yeah, I I pretty much decided at that point that I was really interested in teaching as a career, not just as a fallback for supporting my art. And (laughs) yeah, and that sort of led to uh, decision-making in terms of grad school going forward. And, you know, in grad school, I had great opportunity to teach my own courses, which really was, was pivotal. And at that time, because a lot of those courses were in foundations, that really sort of cemented my investment in foundation education. I really felt that that was, that was the area that I was really interested in working with incoming students having a real impact on their decision-making and really opening doors for them as they made decisions about what they wanted to do as makers going forward. So after that, I got a really excellent position at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And then I uh, eventually found my way to uh, the State University of New York at New Paltz, where I currently serve in the foundation area. Oh, wow. Well, so did you grow up in or on, on the East Coast, or in the Midwest, or where are you originally from? Well, it, a, a little both. I was born on uh, Cape Cod in Massachusetts, but uh, shortly after, my parents moved to the state of Minnesota. So I did, uh, I did my formative education there in elementary school, and then they, they sort of got homesick for the East Coast. So we moved to Connecticut, and uh, I did middle and high school in, uh, in Connecticut. Oh, wild. I've lived in both of those places in, in really random times in, in my life. That's that's wild. I didn't know we had that in common. That's funny. Yeah. Well, so then you decided to become an artist, I, I would assume, probably before you decided to become an educator of art. And so, I mean, growing up, were you creative? Were you encouraged to, to draw or to paint or... Well, I um, I really went into the arts to make money, so that's <laughs> <laughs> I figured that that was the awkward, <laughs> right? That was the most lucrative. And of course, it's so glamorous. <laughs> incredibly glamorous. That's, that's the other. That's the other reason. No, um, no. I mean, really, I think for I think for most of us, there was there was a pretty early, you know, sort of the inclination that this was something that was going to be part of sort of my lifelong pursuit. And it was really natural. I had, I had a great family life that no one else in my family is an artist, but they're like, Hmm, okay, I guess we're going to support this. Um, <laughs> which was, you know, which was so helpful actually, because, and then in my elementary school in Minnesota during the 1970s, 
they had such progressive curriculum at that time that I got to do amazing things in elementary school. That really, I think for me, set up the possibility that being an artist was a possibility and and I, I could make that an actual thing in my life. So I really... I really credit uh, my elementary school as as being really pivotal for my development as an artist. It sounds crazy, but it was it was those early experiences and really the support of my parents as well. They didn't really know the way my mind worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of accepted it and um, really incredibly supportive about it. You know, they, you know, we were definitely very very middle income, and somehow they supported me with art classes and drove me to those things. So it was really, you know, I really credit my parents as to setting me up to make this a possibility in my life. That's wonderful. I mean, because what would have happened had that not been the case, right? I mean, that just would have been awful to have to sort of fight for the permission to be who you are, right? Well, as you know, in talking with students, so many students really do have to fight right. as not only as an educational goal, but to really stick a claim as that this is a viable, important, significant activity that I that I need to go forward with and I need to pursue. And for me, I really feel incredibly uh, fortunate that my family recognized it when I was young and supported it all the way through. I mean, they probably get it less now <laughs> than, than they did then. And so, you know, I'm, I'm an adult, so I can sort of take the kind of questions I, I get now. But as a kid, there was really tremendous support. I feel really lucky in, in terms of that. Well, yeah. And what, what, are you, what does your art practice look like now in terms of the kinds of things you're curious about or the kinds yeah. of, of work that you're investigating? Well, I mean, I think that um, my work in performance is, is definitely a departure. And I think for many people they don't necessarily see a definitive link between what I was doing before and what I'm, I'm doing now. But for me, there's such a, a, while I wouldn't say it's linear, there is such a connection with what I was, what I was thinking about, what I was interested in. And for me, it was a really natural development. And, you know, I was trained, if that's a good way to even talk about it, I, (laughs) I was trained as, you know, in terms of painting and drawing and, and fairly traditionally, not only through undergrad, but then into my graduate program. And it, it, it really developed into making drawings that were more temporal and dealt with uh, duration and time. And that then, you know, tr- the work then very naturally transitioned into me doing performance work on city streets that, that involved sort of... Um, taking snippets of language or ritual gestures and, and doing them in, in very sort of fairly democratic spaces where everybody could participate in the viewing of them and the witnessing of them and potentially even the participation in them. And so for me, it was a really natural development. But, you know, for many people, it, it, I think it's harder to sort of draw that line. Um, but, you know, it really goes back to very early experiences when I was a child uh, being involved with children's theater and 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 actually uh, writing uh, scripts and plays, and so oh, really? uh, it you know for me it really kind of feels full circle the work that I'm doing now and and feels really appropriate for the kinds of questions I'm trying to ask uh, when I make my work. Yeah, and I mean it seems like you know your your past and your present do feel really connected in terms of what you're doing and, and kind of how you're doing it. And it seems like there's there's a theme of like you wanting everyone to have access to that kind of conversation and, and not have this kind of like cool art jocks, you know, whatever you want to call it in a museum or in a, like a tr- traditional space. I mean, what kind of responses have you gotten or what kind of feedback have you received from doing art sort of in the real world or out on the street or, you know, however you want to contextualize it? Well, I mean, the response is always incredibly diverse from people who see it as performance and 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 then participated in in terms of that or, you know, individuals who are are you know, on their way to work and right. 
yeah, okay, don't understand that it's going to keep my head down. And, you know, it always depends, too, on, on locality in terms of, um, you know, where it's situated and uh, what city it's taking place in. And, you know, one of the challenging things that I've experienced more recently, and, and for me it's, it's sort of a, a critical stance that I have to bring to my own work, is, you know, I started off in these very public spaces, and now... A lot of my work takes place in performance festivals or in gallery spaces or museum settings. And it's, it's become a little bit more like performing for a cool kid club. Um, and, mm. you know, so at a certain point in time, one needs to begin to question very, very seriously issues of, of access. And, you know, is my work kind of like performing for my family in my backyard, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, sometimes, uh, to be honest, it feels that way because it's a lot of the same faces, people kind of look the same, and it's not as um, open as it once was um, when I was performing on city streets, which was in one in one sense incredibly vulnerable taking myself out of my normal comfort level in terms of how I present myself in public space. Very, very very different. And, and then, you know, when you're in a gallery or museum setting, there's a very different uh, positionality that one takes uh, when one is sort of the designated artist and people are coming to witness. And there's that sort of power shift that happens. So, you know, I try to play with that quite a bit. In, in my current work, that sort of power dynamic in terms of audience and player and um, those coming to view versus the one that's performing. And, and the, that's become sort of an issue uh, that, I, that I attempt to address in terms of the questions that I pose, hopefully for those coming to take a look at my work. And it's definitely come up quite a bit in recent work. Well, yeah, and and it seems like there's a natural comparison with that power dynamic that that you're experiencing as an artist with an audience and then Mm -hmm. thinking about being in the classroom, you know, in terms of there's an expectation, there's roles, there's awkward sweatiness happening, right? You know, um, and and there's expectation. And of course, there's also access and who's there and who isn't. And how do you feel like your work as an artist impacts how you think about the, the classroom space? You know, I've, I've had the opportunity to talk about this in a, in a few venues, and the, the work of anthropologist uh, Victor Turner I've used before to really talk about the possibility of creating a space. And I think this, this sort of in-between space that exists within a classroom, this in-between space that gets established between an artist and viewership, and you know, thinking about doing performance work and and seeing everybody within a shared space as participants. How does one how does one open up or create a space or the potential for space where that that time and that place is a shared experience and not not necessarily a shared experience in terms of everyone has the same experience. Rather right. How does, how does that space become shared so that there's a potentiality for p- people to be impacted and changed in very individual ways when, when they leave that gathering? And, and I, think, I think very similar things hold, hold open for what happens in a classroom setting. I mean, at least that's my hope. And I think some of the things I'm really interested in, not only in terms of my research as an artist, but but the the way that I'm thinking about what occurs or the potential for what occurs in a classroom setting really, really goes to that idea of this liminal space, this in-between, this in-between space. You know, Turner talks about it as betwixt and between. And for me, that's really the potentiality of that is really incredible. It's oh, all- I love that. It's, it's really, it's incredibly frightening too for, for potentially, <laughs> for, for potentially both, both teacher and student. But, you know, my early work developing writing programs talked about that power breakdown where the educator, the teacher, 
Paulo Freire's work, you know, talking about how do you begin to meet people where they are in their, in, you know, based on their own experience. And that provides then an opportunity to sort of break down as much as possible that power dynamic that normally happens in education between teacher and student. And how do you create a space where you're working together towards hopefully shared goals that are determined not just by the teacher, but also by um, the students within that active space? It's, I mean, yeah, incredibly challenging, but the potential for that where I am now as an educator, I think is really, is really valuable, really important. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of why we're in this, right? I mean, it's 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 magical and it's it's exciting and it, it does have a lot of possibilities. I mean, I think sometimes it can be overwhelming, you know, like, well, how do you start that? Yeah. What, what does that look like? Because when I think about collaboration, I think about trust and participation mm-hmm. and all, all those kinds of words that, that you're talking about. But it's how do you yield control. I think for me anyway, that can be really challenging. Well, I think, I think as an educator, you know, in my own development, when you're first in the classroom, when you, when you're younger and you're just in there for the first time, (laughs) that element of control, that idea about authority, you know, that, that belief in knowledge and, and knowledge being a little bit more absolute, maybe when you're starting out in the classroom is sort of a real limit. And I think mm-hmm. that one of the things, hopefully, that I've gathered from my years of teaching and working with people is that there not only is there a limit to so-called knowledge, but there's also a kind of intellectual humility that both both teacher and student need to bring to the learning environment so that there's a, a shared opportunity for growth and development in, involving everybody that everybody hopefully learns from the experience. And of course, you know, as a, as a, as a teacher, as a faculty member, I need to bring something to that space. But instead of necessarily being the authority, I really like to think of myself more as a kind of provocateur or, or, you know, setting up a kind of inquiry and getting things going without necessarily knowing where they're going to um, necessarily finish up. Hmm. Well, yeah, and it seems like there's a lot of chance that that happens and you have to be flexible um, in terms of of what's going to happen and and being able to respond to perhaps things that you didn't know were going to (laughs) happen. And, you know, and and especially considering the times that, that we're living in currently and the kinds of things that everyone's thinking about, whether it's politics or, or what have you, do you find that, that there are moments in the classroom space that something's brought up that maybe you're like, oh man, I don't know how to answer that. Or I don't know how to navigate. This feels really tricky. Sure. I mean, I think that there's been numerous instances of that in my, in my teaching life, but I think that those questions sometimes come up more recently. And I think that they're more pressing and I think they demand a kind of honesty in the classroom and a willingness to admit to sort of the limitations of both one's experience, but also the limits of one's knowledge base. And, and, to say, and, and to be able to sort of return that back to the student and ask about their experience and, and, and be able to sort of point out, and I think in a really useful way, that because one experiences something doesn't make that experience valid for everybody in that space. Mm. In fact, it may be particularly unique and not necessarily hold truth for anyone else in that space. And I think that, that that's really important because I think, as you know, um, with the kind of difficult conversations that are really taking place in the classroom now, um, which are, I think, quite different from ones that, have, that certainly were happening when I started out, they demand a kind of openness, but also a, you know, being able to circle back uh, with questions that really challenge students to consider not only what they say, but their own positionality when they're saying it. Um, that what, what they have had as an experience isn't going to be universal or hold true for, for, for potentially anyone else. Sure. And, and often for students, that can be a really difficult project. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. They're not, not used to maybe being exposed to other people, whether it's in real life and it's not online or it's someone that isn't exactly like them. I think that can be really, really intense. Yeah, and, and with radically different experiences. Sure. Um, and, and that can be a really challenging space for everybody. But I think that those kinds of conversations, if people are willing to sort of really work together, can be incredibly important for students as they move forward in terms of how they negotiate not only personal strategies, but how they begin to negotiate public space and the kind of loaded atmosphere that can really exist when people are bringing vastly different experiences to that particular shared space. Well, sure. And, and I mean, we, we talk all the time, right, about how, how do you create an included environment? How do you create a safe space where everyone feels included and invited and, and safe and all that, all that stuff, which is incredibly important. But I think it's also important to talk about what happens when you go outside of this safe space, you know, because there are a lot of our students and perhaps our peers that maybe don't feel really included outside of the classroom space, right. um, you know, in the world. And then it, it becomes a, sort of a, a broader conversation about, you know, what does it mean just to be human? Right. And, you know, that's, that is a, uh, that's a lifelong project. Sure. Uh, that's a I hairy, hairy beast, not, right? I mean, figured <laughs> out in drawing one. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> I think that, um, I think that one of the things that, I've really learned as an educator is to be able to talk to students about the issues of time and subsequent patients, right? That Mm -hmm. learning, if one is really serious about it, is a lifelong activity, a lifelong practice. And commitment to that requires and demands a kind of patience that not everything is going to reveal itself right away, that information is going to come and that experiences accumulate. They, they, they accumulate in time. And it's then up to the individual to sort of take from all that accumulated experience and learning. And then they have to pick and choose. They have to edit. And then they have to, de- and then they have to decide. They have to make choices. And it's not necessarily just going to happen in foundation year or undergrad or grad school, it is really, it's one of the things that I, that really challenges me as an educator. And that I often tell to first year students is that, you know, my, my, my goal is not to present to you ideas just for the short term. It's to create a space for your thinking that hopefully sets up strategies that are long-term. And for me, that's, you know, that talking about issues of time and issues of, of patience in terms of, of developing uh, a relationship with a, a certain kind of making or varied strategies for making is incredibly important. Well, sure. And, and how, how do you maintain curiosity, you know, and how do you maintain kindness and being open and being, yeah. you know, soft and and also truthful, you know, I mean, all those things I think are heavy, heavy things, right. And, and challenging, but, but so vital. And I think you really can't disconnect that from, you know, now we're going to learn how to use scissors or now we're going to, you know, do this, we're going to mix purple or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. No, there's, there's, there's there's a real balancing between sort of really practical uh, information and and then things that are going to require much more time to sort of play out. And those, those necessarily have to get introduced, I think, pretty early in the process because they, they will require more time. And, you know, some of, the, some of the words that you used, like curiosity, I mean, I think that for me that is so incredibly important for any human being because I, I think that one of the things that we know as educators is that we're consistently battling boredom. Sure. Uh, and, you know, what does that even mean? If you, if you can instill a kind of active curiosity in students, you've really established uh, a strategy for living that the world doesn't seem gray, but the world seems dynamic and active and at times frightening and overwhelming. But that's better than simply flatlining. And I, I think that's a real goal for me as an educator these days is to 
sort of light a fire, if at all possible, so that students are taking it as a responsibility to not just sort of shrug their shoulders and look around and kind of take up a kind of cynicism that may be seemingly obvious in the wider culture, but resist that to a certain extent by an act of participation, not only in their own lives, but being, you know, more fully aware of the world that's swirling around them. Absolutely. And and I mean, I, I think to be curious is to be an attractive human being, you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, you are someone that is awake and is, you know, tuned into things mm-hmm. and can listen and, and not just talk, right? Yeah. And as, as if you know. Right. Right. Um, And, and, you know, it's I think a curious person is one who's consistently asking questions. And as you said, is really then attentive to what others say is not just participating in listening to themselves talk, but they're they're actively listening to the world around them in ways that are going to not only inform, but but hopefully change them. Um, Sure. And so that it's not just a linear trajectory in terms of one's life, but that the work we do as educators is preparing students. And I think I think um, people that are working in the visual arts or the arts in general, one of the things I think we do exceptionally well in that area of learning is that we oftentimes ask students to sit in places of discomfort so they get used to the fact as a kind of trajectory for living or strategy for, for living Mm -hmm. that sitting amidst discomfort and challenge is actually where a lot of really important uh, developments, not only in human thought, but innovation happen. Mm. Um, That's so true. Where things are pushed, you know, failure is talked about a lot, not only in the wider culture, but in academic circles these years, these days. And I'm just not a fan of that binary between like success and failure. Like somehow you have to fail in order to succeed. I mean, I think that there's some, uh, there's some usefulness to talking about that dynamic, but for me, it's a real continuum because as far as I'm concerned, I think you can fail other human beings in terms of your words and actions. Sure. Right. Even that, one can turn that around. I think there's a certain kind of redemption in that, hopefully, too. If one takes responsibility for one's words and actions in the world, one can actually even be transformed and learn from that as well. But in terms of education, in terms of academia, I don't really see anything other than not showing up and not engaging, <laughs> which I might still say is, is a potential for real learning there, Right. Right. If you fail a class because you don't show up. Um, yeah, that's I mean, I did that when I was in college for sure. Like math. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for my math experience. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it, it just I just wasn't in it. I wasn't in the game. And it was a it was a lesson. It was a loud and clear message. I couldn't get confused by it at all. You know, and, and, and maybe actually you you were doing something important or something happened along the way. Well, <laughs> it was it was a relationship that I was spending a lot of time on. Those are totally not important. Right? Yeah, not not important. <laughs> totally not important. Not but important. at the time, inc- incredibly life changing at the time. But you, you know how it is. Yeah. So right, you made a choice. You made a right. choice. Right. Right. So it's not necessarily like I really I don't like that binary. I'm a real. Mm-hmm. I, really, I find I push against it as much as possible because I think that at least for me, speaking from my own experience, some of the most important things that have occurred in my own life have not necessarily come from success. They've, they've really come from when I've had to sort of look around and sit amidst a kind of ashes, so to speak, and say, okay, well, now what am I going to do? Where do, mm-hmm. where do I go from here? What do, I, what do I need to take responsibility for? What do I need to change? And um, how do I move forward? And, oh, and, yeah, definitely. And, and what do I take from this? 
What am I going to salvage from this? Yeah, and, and, and that is choice, right? I mean, how you choose to respond, how you choose to, like, rebound or come back or, or whatever it is, um, is is huge. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think to, to view failure as this, like, negative or that success is yeah. this positive or that it's black and white and there's only, you know, two choices for ice cream, it, it just seems <laughs> bizarre, right? Because <laughs> there is so much in between and it, and it really is sort of relative because I can think think right now that I'm, you know, in one category or the other. And then five years from now, I can go, wow, that was super wrong when I was thinking about myself. You yes. know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think well, what, I think what, what that demands is a kind of, a kind of expectation that through the questions that you're asking through that kind of process of remaining curious as you move through your life and, and critical, not only of self, but of, of things around you um, and, and things that are presented within the wider culture and society that are truth mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. versus fake. And I, I think that those questions, particularly right now, I mean, I think they've always been really significant, but we're, we're dealing with a political climate where questions of what is true and false, that, that kind of rhetoric is consistently being used. And it's, it's, it's one of those things for students that, you know, talking about those issues is really significant. And, you know, the slippage between truth and fiction and what is real and not real is really important for students to begin to sort of negotiate and not, not think that they can just wait. Sure. Well, and they have permission to sort of come to their own conclusions, to be 18 and to be in college and be away from home and and realize, wow, like I can actually have my own point of view or I can actually be who I've always wanted to be or, you know, have a voice uh, is so valuable, right? Well, I mean, I think that the word that you use, permission, is um, I think a really important task of any educator is sort of, once again, if we circle back to our, our prior conversation about power or power dynamics in the classroom, you know, turning that around and giving permission to your students and saying, look, you know, one of, one of the individuals that I consistently talk to my students about is Roland Barthes and, and use his myth, use, you know, in the classroom talking about mythologies and, you know, what does that, what does that mean? You know, here's a French cultural critic writing in the 1950s about the world that he saw around him. And how does that have any relevance for us today, you know, in the United States? Uh, does, it, does it still have relevance? And, you know, trying to talk to my students about this, this question of what are, what are we experiencing in terms of cultural myths? What's presented as no, that's just the way things are. You know, that's just the way things are in the United States. That's just, you know, that's what Americans do. Um, it, you know, Roland Barthes was really dealing with that in the questions he was asking in, in mythologies. And I think that, you know, giving students permission to ask really important questions that any text that they're given, any idea that they're given needs to be unpacked. It really mm. needs to be examined closely and that they need to participate in that kind of critical analysis. It's not simply that, you know, there's this guy or this woman who has written this text or developed this idea, and because it's being presented, it needs to be accepted. Giving students the ability to be autonomous and be critical of things that are presented to them is immensely important. I I think it's really serious. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crucial when I think about wanting them and wanting myself too. you know, to to be a person that is paying attention and not just passively watching, but really observing and, and really thinking about the kinds of actions or inactions that I'm observing in the world. It definitely I think it, it really allows us to feel like we do have power, that it's 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 not hopeless. You know, we're not just watching this sad situation or, you know, whatever, um, occur that, that, that we're part of it, that we're participants and that we can actually invoke change or invoke something more positive, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, I I think what I really liked about what you, what you just said was that, you know, moving students from just being passive observers. And I, I think observation is a really 
important skill, but moving them from just passive observers to participants, charging them with a certain kind of task as makers, that it's not simply reflecting what is happening in the world, but but they're but they're looking to participate in the making of culture um, and the potentiality for that, um, and not only culture, but how do you, how do they act as citizens in terms of the responsibilities we all have as citizens mm-hmm. uh, to to not just observe from the sidelines, but but to actually participate in the demands that the society and the culture present to us. Sure. Well, I mean, are are there methods or, or ways that that you've tried to create that, that kind of space in the classroom that, that you feel like have been successful, whether it's conversations or reflections, writings, sketchbook things that maybe you want to share? Sure. Um, I think that for me, you know, that not only happens in the studio classroom, but I have an opportunity to teach a, a large lecture course to first year students. It's designed as a seminar course, but doesn't really function as a seminar. It's got <laughs> 50 plus students. So that's not technically a seminar. Right. Uh, but through smaller group discussions and through, you know, having a, a large group of students respond to not only texts, but images and films and, and videos um, and artist statements and collectively not only discuss those, but really challenge one another about what their individual experiences meeting those pieces of text or images, what do they encounter? What do they see? I mean, that question about, you know, what do you see and why do you, why do you see the way you see and how do you sort of step outside of yourself as much as possible and try as much as you can to see things as objectively as you can, or to place yourself in the position of another student whose perspective may be really very, very different from yours. It's difficult work. It's tough work. But I think, I think, that, I think that the results of it oftentimes is, once again, you know, that students hopefully are changed by it, that they don't necessarily have to jettison personal opinions or, or, or dismiss personal experience but that they, they are effectively changed by the words of a colleague or the experience of another person that informs their own experience. I think that's really, I think that's really important in the classroom. Oh, it's crucial. And I mean, it, it sounds like you're allowing them to be who they are, you know, and, and to really think about what that looks like and where that came from and why that is the way that it is. And, and to really think about, okay, well, so what? Somebody painted a painting. So what? Somebody took a photo. Like, great. You know, that's yeah. happened forever. You know, like, mm-hmm. cool. What am I going to do about it? Or what do I think? Or how does it make me feel? Or what does it make me want to do with, you know, my own work or my own habit of making well, I mean, I think that what happened uh, at the Whitney Biennial and the firestorm around uh, a single painting, right? Uh, it, it, you know, it it generated an entire class discussion in my art seminar about this one image and its impact. Not only not only within the art community, but but really addressing all of the issues that it really takes up questions of access and ownership. And everything, every other issue that was was uh, sort of taken up in in that really significant and oftentimes difficult discussion that swirled around that image. Well, sure. Um, and did um, you find that that they were charged in ways that you weren't expecting, or that they took different sides in in ways maybe that you weren't expecting? Well, I think that well, while I wasn't necessarily surprised by the line by the lines that were drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, what was really what was what was really gratifying was in talking to students one on one. They would come to my office, or they would they would email me and say that they were really uh, they were really impacted with the honesty of the discussion. And and even though they may not have agreed with uh, statements that colleagues made, it forced them to follow up and to do more reading. And to really consider their own position that they automatically had. And even though they may not have been fundamentally changed in terms of their position, mm-hmm. they, they, could take, they could take up 
arguments from, say, the opposite side or somewhere in the middle and see that there was a continuum of discussion as opposed to such an easy line that's oftentimes drawn. That oh, totally. That they, could, they, could, they, could, they could place themselves on the opposite side or in an oppositional view to their own. And they, they could come to some sort of understanding why somebody might, might think that way or might view it from that perspective. And I think that that was really, that was really important for me to hear from students in terms of feedback. Well, yeah, and I think challenging anyone to move beyond just their sort of knee-jerk, reactionary, well, that's not art, or that doesn't matter, or that's, that's wrong, or, you know, the, the, those, those kinds of um, responses, which are valuable, but oftentimes maybe not as informed, I think is, is, is so crucial. And I think, you know, encouraging that, that habit of wanting to know more and, and, and wanting to act look at a book or look on the internet or make something is, is really significant. And I, I'm, you know, I'm curious, like in terms of your own artistic practice, in terms of habits and, and what that looks like for you, how, how does that's that's my dog, Olive, who's really excited about our conversation. She's like, wow, let's talk about access. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So I'm, I guess I'm, I'm just curious, what is your, what does your artistic habit sort of look like in terms of the everyday ritual or repetitive things that you do to be a creative person? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to admit this to my students. Well, actually, yeah, I, I do admit it to my students. I, I have never been a, a sketchbook person. I, I mean, I, I write things down, I take notes, but you know, the way that I gather information is I do a lot of reading. And so I guess I, I write things down. I make, you know, I take post-it notes and I put them in the books. So it involves actually a great deal of writing. As I gather information, I try to work out a particular, a particular project or idea that I want to push forward. And I think a lot of my work in recent years has circled around very common themes and they become iterations. Uh, so, you know, while I, I never do the same performance twice and I don't, and I would argue that I don't think any performance is, is the same mm-hmm, Sure. <laughs> regardless. But I, I think for me, a lot of the ideas that I've been focused on over the past several years are ideas that I've been wondering about since I was since I was young, and then got taken up in terms of things that I pursued in undergrad, and then and then the two graduate programs I was involved with. And I was talking to a student at the end of the semester that there was an idea that I'd been kicking around for twenty years, and it finally came out in a performance. And mm. I think that they were really shocked that, um, <laughs> that it not only took that long, but that that idea still had life after that period. period <laughs> you know, they're not even 20 years old and uh, right. uh, I've been kicking around this idea. So for them, it was ancient and it existed. Right. Like thousands of years, right? <laughs> it existed before time. And so <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I, I think for me, I think for me, I take a lot of take a lot of inspiration. I would, I would rather have my work thought about as poetry as opposed to necessarily visual art even. Because the way that I see a poem functioning is it has a structure and, and yet it, for me, it opens up. It, 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 invites, it invites the reader to participate in its definition. And um, so each word is selected and chosen in relationship to other words. And that construction hopefully unfolds in a way that is unique to every single reader. And so the reader then takes responsibility for giving it life. And, you know, I talk to students about that uh, a great deal is that, you know, you have a responsibility to give a text life. Otherwise, it's, it's really dead on arrival. So you participate in its recreation and in its definition and in its overall meaning. And I think that's important for them to, to really consider seriously. And so for, for the work that I do as an artist, I would hope that people aren't there simply to be entertained or to merely observe. But they, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier about Victor Turner, that they think about it as a shared space an opportunity to be um, changed, to be impacted. 
And even if they reject what they see, that potentially um, they can look back on it as an experience that impacted them in ways that they couldn't necessarily fundamentally understand in the moment. And to me, that to me that that's sort of the hope for my work. Oh, that's really exciting. Well, let's hope. That's hope. <laughs> well, I mean, hope hope is really exciting, right? I mean, you know, that's that's why we're here. I mean, I think you know, I I wasn't drafted to be an artist, right? I mean, I I got to choose it and pick it, and right. I'm I'm so grateful that I, I get to do this thing, you know. And and sometimes I don't really know if I'm doing it really well or really great or or um, any of that stuff, but. But it's 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 just a, a really fun thing. Um, well, that's think, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you bring up the idea of gratitude. Um, mm. I, I think recognizing the kind of work that we get to do brings with it not only a certain amount of challenge, but a certain amount of opportunity. That if one really takes a look at it, comparative to other jobs or other opportunities for work, we get to do really interesting work. And we, we have the opportunity to get to decide for ourselves where we take that. Yeah, yeah. and we, we can slowly un, unpack an idea, you know, for a really long time and look at it from different vantage points and marinate on it, which and is hopefully, pretty yeah. awesome. And hopefully, it, and hopefully it exists in time and it continues to sort of emerge. I mean, that's, that's something that I'm continually thinking about in terms of how I think of myself as a maker and and I think it's less and less these days that I that I make such a clear division between my work as an artist and how I live my life. Uh, a lot of the things that I'm thinking about on a regular basis, and then what I do as an artist, there are many of the same questions. And so I think I, what I see is really a fortunate aspect of my life as a as a maker is being able to sort of play out the questions that are that I'm kicking around in my head and I've kicked around since I can remember and I get to, I get to play them out. I get to test them out and I get to ask them again and again, and I get to see where they go. And I, I think that's an extraordinary sort of opportunity. Well, it's wildly fun. I mean, it's, it's just, there's, there's so much there and it's not the same every day and it's not going to look the same. And one thing I I'm so grateful for is that I get to have conversations with folks like you, you know, that, that are doing really exciting things that are teaching, that are inspiring people, but that are just really, really awesome humans. And it's, it's wild to think that I, I, I wouldn't have known any of any of you guys if, if I wasn't involved in, in fate, it's just curious how, how all of that sort of happened. What, what got you involved in the fate community? How did um, that happen or why did that happen? <laughs> That's a really good question, Valerie. Yes. Um, I mean, <laughs> well, I, quite honestly, when I when I started attending fake conferences, I think this goes back to 2005. It, you know, it was a very different. It was a very different environment, oh, and yeah? I think what's been great to see is how it's evolved and changed, and that it's it's grown tremendously. And I think the kind of I think the kind of dialogue and sort of the development of the organization has been really wonderful to see emerge. Right? Um, I think fate and the conferences and the attendant activities, um, say at CAA or around the country, has not only grown, I think, in really important ways, but the the level of criticality in terms of those discussions has become, I think, a lot more serious, a lot more wide ranging and really taking up the changes in not only academia, but what's taking place in the first year of experience in art schools around the country and, and, and beyond. Yeah. And, and I mean, what, and I haven't been involved as long as you have, I think my first fake conference was maybe in St. Louis. So I guess maybe 2011 or something, but, but I, I just was, was so struck and, and have been continually really sincerely impressed and grateful just for such urgent 
real conversations, whether it's about, you know, here's my project, blah, 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 or here's pedagogy, or here's, here's what it's like to live in a really small town and like be a person, you know, and be an artist. Mm And it's just been really exciting and and really like life-changing in a way that seems dramatically insane to to say right now, but, but it really has. I mean, it's, it's really um, helped me a lot, I think, grow as a, as a person and as an observer sort of of the world. Yeah, and I, and I think really going back to what you said about community, connecting connecting oneself with a really diverse group of educators um, from around the country that that ha- have a lot of shared a really a, a lot of shared goals and commitments, and also quite different strategies of of mm-hmm. how they how they view that first year experience. And what that sets up then in terms of autonomy and and, uh, decision-making for the students that we work with. So, I mean, I think that for me, being a part of a a community where not only can I really learn and take from colleagues, but, but just as a support group, too, I think it's been really fantastic. It's, it's huge. I mean, and I, I think that the fact that everyone's voice is, is so valuable, um, I think really has felt really exciting for, for me. But I, I want to tell you that I've, I've really sincerely enjoyed chatting with you tonight. And thank you. Thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a great discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversation about art foundations, visit the FATE website at foundationsart.org. Don't forget the dash between foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. You can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.